Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennium Money Professional. My name's Dev Raga, and this is part two of the Q&A session. If you haven't listened to part one, that's the previous episode. I think it's worthwhile having a look at some of the questions that I've answered. And remember, I'm not a financial advisor, so make sure you consult your own financial advisor or professional before you make any decisions. Now, let's get started. Now, if you're new to this podcast, um, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. And remember the three main aims, education, empowerment, and entertainment. Now, question one in this part two comes from Liam, who asks, what is your outlook to the private healthcare industry once all of the borders are open and COVID-19 is normal? Will clinics be as busy as prior? As a private healthcare worker, I do fear not having the same earning capacity in my line of work, which is physiotherapy. Thank you very much. Now, thanks for the question. I'm recording this episode in mid-2023. I think this question came quite a while ago. So, you know, the reality is healthcare as an industry is still very much got a positive outlook in 2023, even post-pandemic. Now, I've done an episode on private health insurance in general in episode 309, if listeners are interested. And this particular question is about the private healthcare industry. My overwhelming recommendation to a lot of patients is if you can afford private health insurance, then get it. Now, in terms of answering Liam's question, I think the private health industry is safe and sound. I cannot foresee Australia ever moving towards a single payer system like in other countries and not have a private health insurance industry. I also think it's highly likely a public health care system will stay as strong as possible despite huge efforts to destroy it from certain sections of the political spectrum. I don't see this lightly. There are some sections of the political spectrum and some sections of the community who want to see the non-existence of the public health care system or just want it harder for people to access it. It may well be they may impose restrictions that it's only available to lower income earners or healthcare cardholders, or concession cardholders. All that is a possibility in the future. And I hope it doesn't come to that. I'm a major supporter of the public healthcare system. I work in public healthcare systems. And I think getting healthcare is a human right. And I think we should not worry about a person's bank balance when providing healthcare. It could be that in the future, that when people go to the public hospital system, if they're not a low-income earner, they may have a co-payment to visit the local emergency department or get their care in the outpatients department or have the surgery in the public healthcare system. I hope it doesn't come down to that. But this is what we all have to, I think, stick together to fight to make sure that healthcare is a human right in this country. Now, if that makes me out of the ordinary, then so be it. But I think the majority of listeners 
dare I say, would agree with this fundamental philosophy, including those that primarily work in the private healthcare industry. To answer the question of Liam, though, will the private healthcare industry be robust as we come out of COVID? Well, we are technically out of COVID by all accounts, dare I say. COVID does exist. We've learned to live with it in Australia. And I think we've done reasonably well in integrating it as part of our lives. Getting appointments now with GP specialists and non-GP specialists, dentists and allied health, it's extremely difficult. For me to be able to get a dental appointment recently, I had to wait six weeks. Now, I think there are multifactorial issues here, and I think we need to dissect it out individually. I've noted anecdotally there are a significant cohort of healthcare workers across the board who are experiencing burnout. They got shafted these past few years and some of them are nearing retirement, so things get busier, they want to call it quits. Then there's a huge problem with recruitment. This year, huge amounts of grad positions in nursing just went unfilled. Huge amounts of GP registrar positions just went unfilled. The COVID border shutdown has meant relatively undersupply of immigration and healthcare workers over the years, which is slowly being opened up as more and more people come from overseas to practice or study healthcare in Australia. This overall, as population also increases, we have a relative undersupply of healthcare workers. For physiotherapy, literally, there is no viable public option. And if there is people in rural areas or regional areas, the public waitlist is even worse. This means patients have to either put up with it or see physiotherapists and allied health privately. This creates huge demand. Lack of supply will mean rates and consultation costs will rise. Now, if you have private health insurance, it makes it a bit more affordable. If you don't, then you will need to pay out of pocket to see your local physiotherapist. There are some caveats, though. TAC, Transport Accident Commission, or whatever it is in your local state or territory, and work cover. These patients are treated in the public system initially, but they're entitled to fully private allied health outside of their initial treatment. So am I worried for our allied healthcare workers? Not really. Having said this, I'm not in the cold face of allied health, so I'm not on the ground and I would be very keen to hear the opinion of a local physiotherapist or allied healthcare worker about this particular problem. It doesn't really matter which subspecialty you're in, I'd be very keen to get your opinion on this. But overall, I think healthcare as an industry in Australia, public or private, is very robust. Occasional recessions and personal finance budget pressures may mean a dip in income, but coming out of the pandemic, I think the healthcare industry is one of the few industries I think is pretty rock solid. That's a major advantage of healthcare. It's almost recession-proof. Now, I'm in the medical space. Now, I tried to get a non-GP specialist appointment recently for a patient. I had to wait two weeks. Allied health appointment recently for a hand therapist, for a family member. A 10-day wait in private. My dentist, up to six weeks I waited. General practitioner, well, it depends. To get a good GP specialist to be prepared to wait two to four weeks in some suburbs in Melbourne, or a huge demand in rural and remote and regional areas, the wait can even be longer. Now, this is, despite most of this, now migrating towards the private fee-funded service with fees of $70 to $100 per consultation to see your GP specialist. Of course, they need to pay for overheads and all those fees, but overall the demand is there and the supply is grossly limited thanks to the pandemic. On top of this, people like me have left private practice altogether to focus our skills and expertise in the public system. 
So that's another resource drain from the private, which also makes supply hard with rising demand. And the pressures, the cost of living pressures, it doesn't just affect everyday Australian, it affects healthcare workers as well. If your electricity price at home is going up, guess what? Your local physiotherapy practices electricity price is also going up. If your water bills are going up at home, the same thing is happening for businesses. If your wages are going up, then the practices that employ receptionists and nurses and allied healthcare workers, well, they need to have higher wages too. And of course, with all this, compounded by, in the medical sector, the Medicare rebate freeze for over 10 years, has come to fruition. So we have to get used to paying fees for healthcare in Australia. That's what's happening right now. And I hope that all of you that are non-healthcare workers listening in will start asking questions, is that appropriate? Is that the way we want our health system to direct? Is that something that you would want your family and friends and relatives and children to experience moving forward? Now, personally, I prefer healthcare to be as low as cost as possible. There are several examples around the world where healthcare is literally unaffordable for the majority of the public. I don't think we should head that way. I don't think that that should be the future in this country. And I think that we have to be realistic about it. We have to protect our health system, public and private, work together synergistically. But to answer Liam's question, I don't think it's going to be a problem moving forward. And I think the private healthcare industry in Australia is very robust, but I think the cost of healthcare is rising. And that is a concern. And that is a concern for me as a doctor working in the healthcare system. That is a concern for all of the other doctors and nurses and allied healthcare workers and admin staff in the healthcare system. And I think, frankly, that should be the concern of every single Australian in this country. Now, the next question comes from Laura, who says, how to handle public perception of your income, expecting it to be much higher than it actually is. This includes friends and even family members assuming I earn significantly more as a vet, even though I earn above average for a vet. Now, Laura, that's interesting. It's a very good question. I was actually very surprised about vets' incomes when I did a bit of research about this. Despite getting reasonably sized bills from our vet for the healthcare of our family pet, Teddy, I always thought that, you know, you go to the vet, you have to be prepared to pay a big bill and therefore all vets are rich. Well, I also didn't realise vets have a varied of job opportunities outside of the traditional private practice. When I did my research on the incomes for vets, correct me if I'm wrong, the average income for vets is anywhere between $125,000 to $350,000, but not much more than that. Unless you're an owner share in the pet store industry or the food company industry or the pet business industry. Owning and operating a vet practice can be quite challenging. Before we tackle the whole income side of things and the optics of the income side of things, let's look at some of the barriers faced by vets. Number one, first of all, vets have to deal with a lot of stakeholders, similar to other healthcare workers. The stakeholders are governments and legislations, practices of standards to be adhered to, breeders, pet shops, drug companies and labs, Insurance, and this has become more and more common in Australia as pet insurance is becoming more normalised and we have pet insurance for our family pet, Teddy. Animal shelters and RSPCA, dog trainers, pet owners, this is massive and I'll get to that in a moment. Subspecialists in veterinary science, 
employees, nurses, allied healthcare workers for pets. There are so many people that vets have to deal with and have multiple stakeholders. Royal Canine, which is one of the major brands when it comes to pet foods, they did a survey of 250 vets over many countries, and they identify these three key areas of burden for veterinarians. The first burden was knowledge and health. There's tedious amount of paperwork and admin work, which can be a burden, especially if dealing with health insurance claims. The emotional toll due to the nature of their work, dealing with difficult and stressful situations or dealing with animal death. The thing about animal death for me is they kind of trust you as humans to do the right thing. These are the animals. They can't communicate with us like humans can about their health care. And pets can't express their choice in their health care. So the decision making must be very stressful for the vets. For me, it would be very difficult to deal with pets due to this situation. Ironically, I would probably be more comfortable have me making decisions about humans, even if they can't participate actively in their healthcare decision-making, but we have systems to deal with that sort of scenario in human healthcare. I'm not sure if those systems exist in the vet world. Correct me if I'm wrong. If you're a vet listening in, I'll be very keen to have you as a guest, by the way, and really sort of break this down. Vets often work in isolation, making these decisions without much peer support. If I have a difficult decision to make, a complex patient, I usually can discuss it with my colleagues pretty quickly. And there is significant peer support networks available for human healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, allied health, etc. Number two is finance. The study time is quite long, five to seven years. And the outcome and the pay over the long term is not that great. I'm comparing that to medicine. The hours are long. Vets think they're getting a raw deal financially. In the survey, the biggest stress for them is clients refusing treatment based on cost. To be honest, I work in the public system. I've never really faced this, and cost is not something I think about in the public healthcare system all the time. There are some instances where patients are not able to afford some things like outpatient prescriptions or outpatient MRIs, but it's not something that it's at the forefront when I provide care for the patient in the public healthcare system. Cost is something doctors overseas think about a lot in their systems, in their healthcare, where patients have to pay for everything. But it's not something that I have to think about on a day-in, day-out basis. I can't imagine having to discuss costs with pet owners, and if they refuse and the pet misses out on the treatment, which could be vital for their well-being, and they could even die. That would be an awkward experience at the least and devastating at the most. Most clients often perceive vet fees as being too high and expensive, including me. But remember, taxation pays for a human healthcare system. The public system is funded by all of us through taxation, Medicare, the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, and state taxes for our hospitals. It's an animals don't have any of that. The third thing was the client factor. Just like doctors who primarily want to deal with patients, not so much their families, vets primarily want to deal with the animals and not so much their owners. There is a bit of stress when owners don't listen to vets' advice or owners think they know the diagnosis after a Google search. In fact, this pisses off doctors and nurses as well in human healthcare. This creates a lack of respect and culture for healthcare workers in general. I suspect this sort of thing happens in other professions too, like us doctors Googling how to fix our cars and then telling the car mechanic how the car should be fixed. If I was a mechanic, I'd be pretty pissed off too. A lot of vets express concern that pet owners don't know the basics of pet care, which they probably should do before researching and also before 
flying pets. Now, to actually address the question, which was more about how to address the problems of optics of lifestyle of vets and other healthcare workers, you know, is to leave a lifestyle of flashiness, which is not true. Most people would think vets are rich because they're charged so much. But the reality is their incomes are not as high as human healthcare workers or human doctors. I think we need to break this myth about vets. So how do we do this? I think we just live our lives the way we wish. Don't live a flashy lifestyle if you can't afford it. Doesn't matter if you're a doctor or a vet or doesn't matter. We need to run our own race and can't be too focused on worried about what others think. I can't think you need to prove to anyone about your income or lifestyle because it really is none of their business. This is something healthcare workers, particularly doctors, face all the time. Yes, doctors do make above average more income than the usual population, particularly non-doctors, but that doesn't mean all doctors are rich. They do some really stupid stuff. In fact, many struggle to build wealth and quite often getting into the traps of lifestyle creep and it's a real risk. So, in summary, just ignore them. And that's easier said than done. The third question is from George, who asks about salary packaging, determining how much extra tax to give due to HEX and help and maximising super and which fund, etc. Now, I won't go into the super bit of it too much, but I think this is a really good question about the HEX bit of it, and I think it's worthwhile going through the concept of salary packaging. Uh, And I've done an episode on this specifically in episode 105, if you're interested, way back. Essentially, salary packaging just means you can package some of your life expectancies and holiday and entertainment expenses and use your pre-tax dollars to pay for them. Therefore, this reduces your taxable income. For example, every year in Victoria, you can package around $9,010 of living expenses like credit card bills, mortgage, rent, etc. So if your income is $100,000, you don't pay tax on the first $18,200, that's standard, and then you don't pay tax on the additional $9,010. Therefore, your taxable income is reduced from $100,000 to $72,790. This means with that salary packaging, you would have paid a total tax of $24,967, but with salary packaging now, you would have only paid $21,858, which is a saving of $3,109. To make things easier, I've not included superannuation in this income. Now, where does HEX and help debt come in? If you have a help debt, your repayment per year is calculated based on your annual income, which is taxable. This is called the repayment income, or RI. Note the word, it's taxable income and not your gross income. And the threshold for the repayment income for 2023 financial year is 48361 Now, by the time this episode airs, it's going to be the new financial year. You need to look it up on the ATO's website. The other thing is, it doesn't matter how much debt you have. Your repayment is always calculated on your repayment income and not based on how much debt you have. So, if your repayment income is not met you don't have to pay anything. Usually, when you get a job, you need to advise your employer about your outstanding help debt so they can make appropriate withholding of tax so you don't accidentally get stung at the end of the year. Although it's probably wise to get stung given money depreciates over time. Now, how much help debt gets withheld from your taxable income? Well, it depends on how much you earn. The minimum is 1% between $48,361 and $55,836 when it comes to your income, And the maximum is 10%, anything above $141,848. This all happens automatically in the background in your paycheck and also through the ATO. So where does salary packaging come in and how does it affect your tax calculation? We mentioned that a help repayment is calculated based on taxable income. 
This is where adjusted taxable income comes in, and this is what is in the end used to calculate your repayment amounts. So your repayment income is actually your adjusted taxable income. The adjusted taxable income is your actual taxable income plus any gross value of your salary packaging, which is around $17,000, including meal and entertainment. Remember, in the previous example, I only considered the credit card bills and the living expenses. I didn't really consider the $2,650 a you can salary package for meal and entertainment accommodation. So this is where informing your payroll is useful if you don't want to be slugged with some extra tax at the end of the financial year. So in the previous example, where the taxable income goes from $72,790 from $100,000, now the adjusted taxable income is $72,790 plus around $15,900. Again, I haven't included the meal and entertainment. And now your adjusted taxable income is $88,690. And this means now your new taxation for that amount is $21,065. So it's still a saving, but if you have a help debt, you just need to be aware of it. And there are calculators available online. And I hope this clarifies. Now, we'll just take a quick break, and when we come back, we've got a couple of questions. One's a very interesting one about elective egg freezing, and also back to principles about savings rates. Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click Get Help, and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click Get Help. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, welcome back. Now, the next question is from Anonymous who asks, is elective egg freezing worth the cost? This is a very fascinating question and a very personal one. For the purposes of this podcast, I can't advise the value of something which is so personal to the individual. Now, we didn't have elective egg freezing, so I don't really have that understanding about what the emotional uh, value is of actually doing it. But for the purposes of this podcast, I really think it's worthwhile learning about the process in case some listeners are thinking about it. The principle here is a biological woman is most fertile between the age of 20 and 30. So this is the best time to have children if you're thinking about starting a family, biologically. But you may not be in a position to have a child financially or for whatever reasons, so this is where elective egg freezing comes in. 
Between the ages of 35 and 50 for women, although women menstruate, the ovarian function declines over time. Apart from not being ready to have children as the main reason, some women may choose to freeze their eggs due to medical reasons. The most common is chemotherapy and cancer treatment. So what's the process like? The process is to store the unfertilized egg from a woman. It's a way to preserve potential fertility into the future. The patient is given hormonal stimulation to stimulate a group of fertile eggs, usually 10 to 15. The stimulation medication is a self-injectable. Then, under a sedation procedure with the help of a guided ultrasound, the fertility specialist extracts the eggs from the ovaries. It's usually done via what's called a transvaginal approach, i.e. via the vagina. The procedure takes 15 minutes, and usually the patient is sent home the same day. The eggs collected are frozen, called a vitrification procedure. The medium is then frozen, is called the liquid nitrogen. Then when the patient is ready to have children, these eggs are thawed and are used for fertilisation with sperm cells. Now the statistics are this. 90% of eggs frozen are survivors. 50-70% to of eggs are suitable for fertilisation. And 30-40% to survive to the blastocyst stage and the embryo chance is around 25-40%. to Now, these figures are rough figures and not literature search, and I'm not a fertility specialist, so please consult your fertility specialist for more information. This podcast is not intended to be a medical lecture. As you age, the chances of a live pregnancy from a fertilized egg is lower. For example, in your 30s, the chances are up to 70%. In your 40s, though, it can drop down to 8%. Now, what are the costs of egg freezing? This is different depending on the practitioner, and I did some research specifically in Melbourne because that's where I live, and the treatment cycle is anywhere between $3,500 to $7,000, probably a little bit more expensive by the time this episode is aired. The anaesthetics fee can be anywhere between $300 to $750 out of pocket. The medication may not be PBS funded, and you may have to pay full price. They're around $1,300 to $3,000, depending on the number of needles and the number of cycles you need. The actual storage fee is not that high, which is around $300 to $600 per year. And the hospital fees, some private health insurance companies don't cover it, so it's around $1,200 to $1,500 for the day case. And these are estimates and don't represent the entire market, so it's worthwhile researching in your particular city or country town. Different states may also have different prices. Now, should you use buy now, pay later schemes for such procedures? Surprisingly, for cosmetics and IVF and fertility treatments, you can use buy now, pay later schemes. Some of the providers offered those schemes. Deeply uncomfortable about this. It's really tricky. Even though buy now, pay later schemes say they're not debt, well, it's a form of credit and that's a form of debt in my view. But I'm not in that position to require to freeze my eggs. So it's easy for me to say that. Don't buy, borrow money and don't do this and don't do that. So I acknowledge that. You need to make that decision, taking on those risks if you want to. But fundamentally, I do not think buy now, pay later schemes in general are a good financial decision. So overall, is egg freezing worth it? I don't know the answer to that. And only the person that's considering it can take all of this information, do their own research and come to their own conclusion. And the last question is from Anon, who says, what percentage or dollar amount goal from my income as junior doctors should we be trying to save? Now, the basics of savings should be at least 20% of after-tax income. I've been banging on about this over the last five years of my podcasting career. But if you can't do that, that's okay. Then do what you can and you must work towards the 20% after-tax income. 
As a junior doctor, I assume internal residency and registrars, hopefully you will keep your expenses low. This means some junior doctors I've spoken to have managed to save as much as 50 to 70% of their income. Of course, that's hyper savings and may not be possible, but the best answer is save as much as you can when you're younger and invest as much as you can when you're younger. The best way to answer this question more so is finding out how much you would need to save based on income. So supposing you have an aspiration of reaching a $2 million in investment portfolio outside of super, and supposing your income is around $150,000, which is higher than interns and residents, but is on par with most registrars, including some penalties and weekends and overtime work, and supposing your return on investment is around 7% on average, expense ratio you've kept it to a minimum of 0.5%, and I've not accounted for inflation here, so that's not to complicate things, you would have an after-tax income around $89,000. Now, 20% pay yourself money would be around $1772 per month. And after 30 years, you would reach around $1.9 million. So if you didn't do the 20% and delayed it, and only delayed it by another five years, for example, then your end result for the same scenario would be $600,000 less. Now, if you didn't do it and delayed it by 10 years, then your end result is over a million dollars less after those same 30 years. Now, that's astounding. And that's why saving as much as possible and investing as much as possible as early as you possibly can is one of the best decisions you can make. My personal journey has been massive savings rate early in my career. Plow it all into investments. And now, since I have a family and kids, I can take the foot off the accelerator and relax a little bit, and stick to the 20% after-tax income. My savings rate in my junior years were up to 70%. But I do understand it's not for everyone. So if you can't do the high savings rate early, then do as much as you can, as practically you possibly could, and work towards the 20% after-tax pay-yourself rate. I've done a detailed episode about savings rate versus investment returns in the past, so just go to my channel and just search for those keywords. And uh, if you're interested, I'll go through some examples in that episode about why it's really important and which of those is really important early in your career versus which of those is really important later in your career. Now, that's about it for this episode. Thank you for those informative questions. I'm trying to read as many questions as possible, and many have very similar themes. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of questions to read. I've got about 50 pages of questions that people are asking and I just can't keep up. So I apologize if your question is not directly answered. What I normally do is I go through the whole 40, 50 pages at a time, try and pick out the ones that I think would be interesting and ones that I haven't really talked about in the past. Now, remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you may be using. I'll leave a five-star review on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review because it really helps people understand the podcast and it helps the algorithm in promoting it. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to the podcast. So please keep them coming. My name's Dev Raga, and this is My Millennium Money Professional. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. 
This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.